Well, welcome everybody. My name is Ben. My father sitting next to me is Joe. That would be me. We both have the last name Henderson, and we're going to talk about sports from Tampa. Hence why this podcast is called Tampa Bay Sports with the Hendersons. Very creative uh, title there, son. Well, we don't have enough sponsorship to get us a better title, but, you know, details. So this is Monday, recording on a Monday, and this is January 13th. It's about 7.30 right now, so this is before the college national championship game that is tonight. But we did get to watch the NFL playoffs this weekend. Some things going according to plan. San Francisco and Green Bay both winning at home. However, topsy-turvy in the AFC. A lot of chaos with the Kansas City Chiefs storming back against Tony Dungy. I mean, Bill O'Brien and the Houston Texans. And also Lamar Jackson. He tried. But it turns out when your receivers can't catch the ball, uh, it makes it more difficult to win the game. And thus, the Tennessee Titans emerge victorious and are going to the AFC title game. That is Ryan Tannehill as quarterback. So, given that this is Tampa Bay Sports with the Hendersons and that we care about our beloved sports in Tampa, I'm intrigued by the Titans situation. And we talked about them last week because a lot of this is built off of an elite running back in Derrick Henry, but also something that hasn't gotten a lot of talk is their defense. And the Bucks towards the end of the season were showing shades of a top-level defense, particularly with their defensive line. Now, the only problem for the Bucks is coming into this offseason is that most of their defensive line, at least the guys that we care about, they are up for free agency. And some of them, including Shaq Barrett, they're going to be more expensive to keep around than the $800,000 he signed for this season. Yeah, I think he's going to get a raise. Yeah, just just a little bit. So what we're going to kind of look at here as it relates to the Bucks is we're going to look at their defensive line. And we're going to play a little game here called over-under salary cap style. So what we're going to do here is we're going to – call out a number of if you were the Bucks, would you be willing to pay this gentleman more money than this number? Or if he would like to remain a member of Tampa, he's going to need to sign for less money. Now to set some parameters for this conversation, if the Bucks were to franchise tag Jameis Winston and all of these players were to sign right at this over-under number that we have set, this would only leave the Bucks with $23 million in cap space to whatever other free agents you wanted and, you know, your whole 2020 draft class as well. So this is going to be a tight squeeze, even if you were to sign all these gentlemen right at the over-under. So, Father, are you ready to play some over under Tampa Bay Buccaneers defensive line style. Let's do it. All right, let's start with our headliner, Shaq Barrett. He obviously had a great season, 19 and a half sacks, led the NFL in a position that is at a premium 
in this league. And we mentioned on one of the last podcasts that uh, Aaron Darnold of the Rams, he is the highest paid defensive lineman in the league at $22 million. Obviously, in Shaq Barrett's case, this season kind of came out of nowhere as he did not have 19 sacks combined in all his time at Denver. So I will ask you this, esteemed former Tampa Tribune sports writer and current FloridaPolitics.com writer Joe Henderson, if you are the Tampa Bay Bucks, if he comes to you for $20 million, are you willing to go over that or – does he have to take less to stay? Well, he doesn't have to take less because, as you adeptly pointed out, it's a premium position. And let us not forget, we spent, what, about a decade or so complaining that the Bucks had no pass rush. And along comes this guy that, you know, you were you were upset last year when they didn't draft the, the – Josh Allen. Josh Allen. And from, not the Bills QB, but the – Yeah. The defensive lineman. Right. And – Turns out maybe they I, – I can't honestly say that they knew they were going to get 19 and a half sacks out of this guy. That would be ludicrous. But they got him. Now you say, well, okay, he didn't have that many combined in his whole career up to this year. What's the difference? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples, different positions, but the same principle applies. Ryan Tannehill. They couldn't get him out of Miami fast enough. Now he might be the Super Bowl quarterback, you know, because he got in the right system. Derrick Henry, we all agree, oh, he's a monster. He's, he's unstoppable. He's this. He's a, he ain't been this good his entire uh, career, but they get the right coach in there with the right scheme, and all of a sudden he's a superstar. Now, in Barrett's case, maybe Todd Bowles, the defensive coordinator, is the right coach at the right time for the right player. And I remember I go back to, to training camp and all the defensive guys were just praising Todd Bowles, how aggressive he was going to be and how um, you know they felt liberated from the previous regime. And I normally just don't pay much attention to that kind of stuff in August, but it um, – it worked out this time, and so to get to go back to the original premise that you said, is Shaq Barrett worth the money? And the answer is yes. Show me the money. Show him the money. You got to keep him. Yeah, I think that if I'm the Bucks, I think you're kind of going to get forced over that twenty million. I think I would front load it with some heavy guarantees only because of some of the unknown. Is this repeatable? He did do this in a contract year. That does always worry me, but it is a premium position. And I think if you have a opportunity at a top tier guy, I think you just have to take your chance. I think you've been dying for a decade to get a guy this good. He's in your locker room, and I think even if you have to go over this number a little bit, I think you're going to be forced to do it. All right, let's move on to our next gentleman. This is Indomitian Sue. Now, he only had two and a half sacks this year. That's less than 19. 
Yeah. I know math wasn't your strong suit. A couple other metrics on him. He had 14 quarterback hits and seven tackles for a loss. Now, this season, he was paid $9 million for his services. However, we're going to give you a couple gentlemen who had very similar numbers. Uh, Vernon Butler of Carolina, Dalvin Tomlinson of the New York Giants, Gerald McCoy, I've heard of that guy. Yep. Jonathan Allen of Washington and Shelby Harris of Denver. Outside of Gerald McCoy, the highest paid guy in that list was Shelby Harris of the Denver Broncos, making $3 million. So that would be less than what Sue made. Yeah, just a little bit less. So I don't think you can justify $9 million for him. However, based on some reputation and namesake, Mr. Henderson, could you justify $4 million for Indomitian and Sue? If he would take $4 million to return to the Buccaneers, you don't give him another moment to think about it. You just shove a pen in his hand and say, sign. You know, there's an example of another guy who maybe thrives in this system. Now, I'm going to say this. Uh, I know in, in this metrics-crazed world that numbers are everything. I don't think they are. The only numbers that matter are, in the Bucks' case, seven and nine, but you couldn't lay that on the defense, at least not the second half of the year. And they really have the makings of, a, of a, an elite defensive core, especially if they can add another piece or two at linebacker. So Sue is getting up there in age. I get it. Uh, you don't break the bank for him. If he comes in and says, no, I want to raise, you say, well, have a nice life. But if you could get him at the number you said, run, don't walk. I might sound crazy here. I'm actually going to disagree. For me and the ones we're going to put on this list, this to me feels like under, and this would be the easiest under for me. Because as you also know, this is a league where you need young, cheap talent. And I feel like for $4 million, you'd be paying – for the namesake more so than you would the production. And I think for the Bucks, if you're going to pay him the $4 million, you would have to internalize that in the locker room and as a you know veteran player coach, if you want to phrase him as that, that you feel like that extra million to possibly $2 million would be worth it. Because, again, the problem is it's not whether or not he himself is worth $4 million. The problem is it's going to be your cap space. Well, and eventually I, I, you're going to run out of money and have some hard choices to make. I, I have a great idea how they can save some money on the cap. Does it involve their quarterback that threw 30 million, yeah. 30 interceptions? Yeah, that's – That's – Yeah. And, um, well, and again, that's a choice they're going to have to make. And I think if you're going to pay a little bit more for Sue, I might get a little worried if I was Jameis. Uh, all right, so next guy on our list. Jason Pierre-Paul, JPP. JPP. Uh, this dude, I will say, has probably had one of the best redemption arcs we've seen in the NFL. Dude was the butt end of every joke you can imagine after blowing off his hand via fireworks. And worked his tail off, came back. Then in the offseason, breaks his neck. This time, not his fault. And it was feared he was going to miss the season. Ended up coming back, 
played 10 games. In those 10 games, got eight and a half sacks, which ended up being top 30 in the league. Also had 16 QB hits, nine tackles for a loss. And this season, Bucks only paid him $5 million. And if you look at some other individuals who had very similar statistics, and again, this is somewhat skewed because of the first six games that he missed, Brandon Graham of Philadelphia, Matt Ian Donis, hope I'm saying that right, of Washington, made $7 million. And Robert Quinn of Dallas made $8 million. So, Joe Henderson, I will present to you over under JPP $8 million for 2020. <sighs> That's a tough one because now you really are starting to squeeze your cap. But I would say yes, um, maybe with some conditions. I wouldn't give him a lot of guaranteed money. There might be somebody out there willing to go crazy money on him. I doubt it at his age and some of his physical uh, problems. But you mentioned how he came back. Everybody thought he was out for the year. Comes back and plays 10 games. Now, if you've got a young, impressionable team, which the Bucks are, they're the second youngest team in the NFL, even with these old guys, um, you've got a heck of an example to look at there. This is how you do it. This is how you prepare. And, you know, guys out there just throwing his body around, you know, and, and playing very effectively. And maybe he plays off Barrett. Maybe they're having to pay so much attention to Barrett that he can spring free. Maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. But I would say if you can keep this line intact, do it. Now, we don't know um, – who's going to be available in the draft where the, where, where the Bucks pick or whether they're going to try to trade up, trade down, who knows what they're going to do. But all those things are factors. But that, to me, seems like a reasonable price to keep JPP. Yeah, and I might be willing to go slightly over that, maybe a three-year, $27 million, which would be $9 million a year. Again, sometimes what's tricky with these numbers is how you structure the bonus money and the signing bonus money, which can affect your cap hit. He is 30, and kind of like Sue, the only problem is once you hit 30, you don't know when it's going to happen, but eventually guys just fall off the wagon without warning. And that's what makes some of these decisions, I think, all the more difficult. I will say I don't think he's a guy, if he signs a big contract, he's just going to stop trying like we've seen some other guys do. I think he likes it in Tampa, especially given the USF connection. And given how hard he's worked to come back from a uh, blown-off hand and a broken neck, I do think he's a guy where if you give him money, he's not just going to stop working. So I might be willing to go a little over on that. Well, he's also got a coaching staff that believes in him. Which is always good. Yes. So. All right. Last main side guy on the defensive line, this is Carl Nassib. Now, he is coming off his rookie contract, which he was not drafted by the Bucs. He was drafted by the Browns, who, for whatever reason, decided to let go of him. Well, now, they're a fine, astute organization. They must have seen something they don't I, like. Like, he was effective, so they had to get rid of him. Yeah, there's – yeah, we'll go with that. So, this season, he had six sacks, 11 QB hits, eight tackles for a loss. And we've kind of compared his numbers uh, with a couple of other – 
of gentlemen. So coming off his rookie contract, our last over-under of this week, are you willing to pay Carl Nassip $5 million? Uh, probably. Again, you're keeping a core unit intact. Now, I'm a big one for believing that uh, success at any level of football starts on either side of the line. And if you've got the, the, the guys up front who can get the job done, which the Bucks clearly did, then you got to reward those guys. Now, I know that there's you know, uh, other teams out there that might be willing to pay more or do whatever. And it, when they say it's a numbers game, what they really mean is it's all about the money. So they can say, well, I, I love it here. I want to play here. I've heard that a thousand times. And then, you know, like 20 minutes later, the guy signs with another team. But if we know it's a business, I don't know if the Bucks can keep all four of those guys. Um, it would be nice if they could, but again, not knowing what they're thinking about in the in the war room, you know, uh, on draft day and what they might have, uh, we don't know. Yeah, I think five million might be the sweet spot. I don't think I'm willing to go over that. I don't think I'm willing to break the bank for him. I think he's a solid player that you can depend upon. Now, just a couple uh, closing things of note here as it relates to the Bucks' salary cap. If they sign all these players. That would give them 49 players signed for the season. Now, that would also mean that 20 of their 25, and again, we're including Jameis getting franchise tagged in this, and this also includes the practice squad, would be unsigned. And one word of caution, and we haven't heard any rumblings yet, and we're not trying to stir the pot here, but Chris Godwin at some point is going to be due for a pay raise as he only made $900,000 this year and if you are looking for a classic give me more money i'm not going to say he's going to hold out i don't know if he's that kind of guy but he's certainly a guy you need to be thinking about to give more money before it gets too late and so with that said and as our kind of closing thought on the bucks cap and something we're going to evaluate next week i might be a little nervous if i'm on that offensive line uh three of the top five returning players that are signed right now when it relates to most money towards the cap are on the offensive line. That is Mr. Smith making 14 million, Mr. Marpet making 10 million, and also Mr. Jensen making 10 million. That's a lot of money for a group that I don't think it was as bad as people said, but they definitely were not a top level group. And if I was them, I might be a little bit nervous. So we're going to kind of next week evaluate where they stand. And is it possible you're going to cut one of them to save some cap room? We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the lightning who finally lost the game somehow, somewhere. Cooper must go. Obviously. We'll be right back. Tampa Bay sports with the Hendersons. We are back with Tampa Bay Sports with the Hendersons. This is a father-son podcast that you didn't ask for, but we're going to give to you anyway. 
Isn't that right, Father? Sure, why not? Yeah. We're, we're, we're giving people. Yeah. We're doing stuff. So now we're going to talk about the lightning. And John Cooper, he, he's got to get fired. The hashtag fired Cooper. I mean, you lost to the Devils. Yeah. Who who does that? I mean, ignoring that they also beat the Capitals on Saturday night 5-1, to one, who are you know, the best team in the Eastern Conference. You, you, you know, I don't care that you won 10 games. You're, you're done. Yeah, it's over. Yeah. If you missed the game last night because you were watching football, Lightning did lose 3-1 to one to the Devils. Uh, and that includes an empty net goal. A lot of shots that they missed high and wide. If you look at the, the underlying numbers, Lightning really did dominate the game. The two goals they gave up with a goalie in net were blue line shots that just they found their way through. That's what happened. That's hockey. And that's why hockey sometimes is a stupid sport. Well, let's just say this about the Lightning. They have had, an, especially of late, an absolutely brutal schedule. You know, they've got all these back-to-backs. There was <laughs> – they're going from Canada to U.S. back to back. They're getting in late. Uh, a lot of a lot of games on the road. So for them to go into the Devils game with ten in a row, you would have if they were if somebody told you they'd be seven and three, you you would have taken it. Six it's true. And, maybe six and four. Yeah. And so I think they in this process that they, they had talked about how. Uh, trips and stretches like this can define a team and it can bring them closer together or tear them apart. I think we would all agree. It looks like the lightning are a lot closer together. They seem to have adapted to some of the style changes they needed to make in the wake of last year's playoff disaster. And so um, they have every uh, reason to believe that they can uh, hoist Lloyd Stanley's goblet yeah, I'm, I'm not worried about last night. That again, no. The numbers were better. Sometimes that happens. It's That's a, just hockey. It's a hockey thing. I do think the the fact that's more encouraging for me is that they are more focused on the defensive side of play. If you look at where the shots from the opposition are coming from, they're coming from above the dots or outside of the dots more often, which is something we couldn't necessarily say last year, and it's something – Anton, Anton Strawman talked about in an interview with The Athletic how Bazzi bailed them out a lot. One thing I do want to talk about is over some of the this win streak, one thing John Cooper has started to do in spots is he's put Point Kucherov and Stamkos together on the same line. This is something we would see him do last year if maybe they were trailing or as a tied game late and he really wanted to push for a goal. But there were spots where he was doing this for the entire game uh, during this winning streak. So I'm going to ask you the following question, esteemed sports writer Joe Henderson. That would be me. Do you prefer putting all of your best players on one line or – would you rather kind of spread the wealth out over a couple different lines and keep Point Cooch and Stamkos kind of mixed like they traditionally are? Well, I would answer it this way. If I put those three on one line and you're the other coach, how are you going to defend that? 
with players that have sticks and skates and possibly a prayer to your team chaplain. Yeah, because no matter who you say, okay, we're going to stop Stammer on this one. All right, Kucherov beat you. Or we're, we're going to stop Kucherov. Well, Stamkos or Point beat you. So, yeah, it's it's kind of a pick your poison type of thing. Now, you know, sure, teams can go back into a shell back then. And as I used to say when I coached soccer, wanted to go defense code red. But the, the fact is that is an overwhelmingly powerful line. And what, why I would say keep them together, the guys behind them aren't chopped liver. They're pretty good players. No, and I think that's where kind of Palat and Kalorn having kind of renaissance seasons maybe allows you to put that line together more often because you can send your second line out there and at least have some confidence they're gonna that they're gonna score. A good example of how putting all three on the ice at the same time creates havoc. Uh, and I forget if it was Vancouver or Arizona that this happened against, I want to say Arizona, is Point comes down the ice. He comes through the red line into the offensive zone. It's a three-on-three play, so the opposition had the numbers back to defend this. But then, because Braden Point's talented at hockey, he drew an extra defender towards him and inexplicably just left Kucherov wide open in the circle, which, I don't know, seems like a bad idea to just leave Kucherov wide open. Maybe not something you should do. But I think that's the havoc that that creates is you're forced to make choices of who you're going to defend. And one of the key things of hockey, especially as we get into the playoffs, is you can do all these little things right you want. At the end of the day, the scoreboards, did you put the puck in the net? And certainly putting these three together – gives you that opportunity to do so. Now, I'm just going to throw out there, if I were to break them up, because I was to play on this idea that if I break them up, it gives me a greater opportunity for my top two lines combined to score some goals. I would do something a little bit different, possibly. So on my top line, I put Braden Point in the center. Because I think two ways he's invaluable on offense and defense. And I would actually pair him with Stamkos on the left wing. But on the right wing, I kind of break him up from Cooch, who he's been with. And I'd actually put Palat on the right wing. And the reason I'm going to do this is because, believe it or not, and this is going to sound blasphemous, Stamkos might be the weakest of the three. And I only say that because I think he of the three is dependent on others to pass in the puck. As you know, he is an elite level sniper, but in order to be a sniper, you have to have somebody pass the puck to you. And I think if you're in the other version of the broken up lines with Point and Cooch, and then Sam Coase is on the other line with like a Sorelli or Kalorn, it's not that Sorelli can't pass the puck, but he can't pass it as well. His point. There are some numbers to kind of back me up on this. The expected goal share, and this is how many goals can we expect you to score versus how many are we expecting you to give up based on the situations. Uh, Stamkos 
has an expected goal share of 58% with point on the ice versus 49% um, when he is not with Palat or, or without point. And then when he's Stamkos is on the ice with Palat, uh, Stamkos has an expected goal share of 61%. So I think that line works well together. And then I would try a line as well of Sorelli in the center, Kucherov on the wing along with Kalorn. I think Kalorn can drive to the net. I think Kucherov is a good enough playmaker that he would play well off of Sorelli. And so I will ask you, Father, what do you think of my line blending? And do you think those lines work, or are you like, you're an idiot, and just keep these lines as Cooper has kept them? I don't think you're an idiot, but I do think you're overthinking it. Probably. Um, they just won 10 in a row doing what you say they shouldn't do. So um, I just want to maximize the amount of time they have an opportunity to score a goal. And I want to actually score the goal, actually score the goal and have them just get to know the, the tone of each other's expressions as, as the year goes along. Cause they work so well together, you know, that's the problem with a lot of sports. They get something that works and they go, yeah, but somebody might stop it one night. So we've got to come up with another plan. And that's how you get beat. Well, hopefully they figure out the right combination. I do think come playoff time, I think putting those three together has merit to it. You tell your other lines, hey, just kind of play some defense, hang back, and let this top line go out and get the goals we need. Because honestly, in the playoffs, you're going to win more games 2-1, to 3-2 to two kind of style versus the 5-4, to 4-3 four, four to three kind of style as we have seen. So this week, letting have a home game tomorrow against Los Angeles. They then go on the road for two. And then it is the all-star break. And then they come back from that with a road trip. So... A lot of road games upcoming for the Lightning. Also, as of note, Dazaleski actually got named to the All-Star team today, replacing Tuka Rask of Boston. He will join Victor Hedman in the festivities in St. Louis for, I know, your favorite three-on-three tournament of the season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, three-on-three hockey. It's exciting in overtime. Maybe not That's so much nice. in the... I, I, you know, I've seen enough pickup basketball at the park that's three on three. I, I, yeah, no. yeah, well, yeah. Anyway, right. we're going to take a break. And for our last segment, we're going to talk about the Rays, who actually had a busy and impactful week making a key trade. So if you stay with us, we're going to come back and tell you about it right here on Tampa Bay Sports with the Hendersons. We are back for our final segment. Father, son, we're here. Let's talk about sports. Hey, why not? Yeah. So, Tampa Bay Rays, they actually made the news this week. They made a big-time trade, which I personally feel like is not in the realm of what they normally do. They are, for once, the team trading away a prospect, trading away pitcher Matt Libator. Now, he was ranked 41st among 
prospects in Major League Baseball, and he was considered their third best prospect within the Rays organization. In return, the Rays are getting a couple players from the uh, St. Louis Cardinals. They're getting Jose Martinez. He is a first baseman slash outfielder. Last year had a batting average of 269 with 10 home runs. However, the previous three years with St. Louis, he had a 309 batting average, although only 31 home runs. So he is not a power guy by any means, even in this new power age. And he is 29 years old. They also acquired kind of a prospect from St. Louis as well. And he's maybe the more intriguing one because they also will have his rights through 2025. This is Randy Arozarena. I hope I'm saying that correct. I hope the Randy's family is not listening to this podcast, sending in angry tweets. Now, he is 24 years old. He's only played 19 games in the majors. However, in the minor leagues last year, he had a 344 batting average and an OPS over 1,000 at 1,003. So I asked this question to you, Father, who obviously has followed the race since their existence. To me, this doesn't seem like their typical approach. I feel like the Rays are the team that typically goes after the prospects and will trade away kind of the veterans. So I will ask you, is this a sign that they think they can compete now? Slash, are they possibly worried about the fact that the Yankees got Garrett Cole, who, you know, is maybe the one player responsible for knocking them out of the playoffs, trading out a pitcher for some offensive pop. Well, you're right. This doesn't, on the surface, seem like a typical Rays move. So, <clears throat> yes, I think it, well, they, they have to think they're contenders. They are contenders. Uh, they've won 90 or more games in each of the last two years. They came within the uh, uh Game five in the playoff series against the sign-stealing Astros of, of moving on. So they clearly are reacting as a team should when it has a window like this. Now everybody's going, oh, my gosh, they gave up a young, talented, number one draft pick left-handed pitcher. That isn't what the Rays do. Well, let me tell you, son. Please tell me. Teams that trade with the Rays inevitably regret it. And if the Rays were willing, I'm not, I'm not saying Matt Levitore is going to, going to fall on his face. I'm not saying that at all. But for the Rays to give up a prospect that they, everybody says is that good and can be a dominant top-of-the-rotation starter, they either A, their metrics tell them, no, it's not going to work out as well as we thought, and we better move him while we can, or B, and I hope this is the right answer because I'm certainly not looking for the guy to flop, but B, they are saying the guys we get in return will add more to our team than what we give up by giving away uh, the pitcher. Do you think their switch towards the opener strategy and going more bullpen heavy influence this decision with the thought that you can kind of get away with only three and a half quality starters given the way that the Rays approach it? Do you think that influenced them trading away a pitcher? I could have. Um, they 
clearly have learned that uh, you don't place the value on starting pitchers that traditionally was was placed. And because we know the Rays are always looking to save a buck, they're looking down the road at a young, potentially superstar left-handed pitcher going, okay, we're going to have him three years tops, and then we got to trade him before he reaches the final year of his con, you know, you know, and, and wants 800 gazillion dollars. I mean, that could factor into it, but what I'm, I don't, I don't want to go into conspiracy theories like that. What I will say is the Rays for my money have the shrewdest front office in the game for them to do what they've done with the resources they have is just ridiculous. And so they've earned the right, in my opinion, for people to say, well, okay, you've shown, you know what you're doing. We'll trust you on this one. Yeah. And I think in our hot take society, which again, if you want hot takes, we're not the show to listen to go watch and listen to literally anyone else. It's hard to evaluate these trades when it's a prospect. Cause you don't know, as you said, he appears like he could be a good player, but it's the same as NFL draft. You draft a guy in the top 10 doesn't mean he's going to be a top 10 player. So I, I like it. I think they're being aggressive. I think they recognize that they do have opportunity now. I'm sure the Garrett Cole signing kind of forced their hand a little bit and possibly trying to take advantage of Boston. We'll see if they're, up or down, but I think they also recognize that the Blue Jays and Orioles are so down right now that if you can just even be better than one of the two between the Yankees and the Red Sox, you stand a pretty good chance to make the playoffs given the wild card situation throughout the rest of the American League. Well, and, and I'll go back to the, the point I made about, you know, you, you trade the you know, trades that you make that, that maybe people look at and go, what are you doing? The Chris Archer trade. Yeah. Right back at the deadline in 2018, he trade, he's traded to Pittsburgh for Tyler Glasnow and Austin Meadows. Yeah, who are those guys? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, um, class, who got the better of that deal? I believe that would be the hometown baseball team. So, and... You know, when they, when they went out and got Tommy Pham, everybody goes, what? what? Tommy Pham was a key player on that team. Now, why did they trade him in this offseason? I don't know. But they they are chess masters. They're two moves ahead of everybody. And so let's, you know, let's see how it works. But right now, I'd, I'd roll the dice and say the Rays are going to come out of this just fine. All right, I'm Relay here, not on our show notes. But I'm going to close with this question. You are an esteemed Cincinnati Reds fan. That would be me. And as you know, Pete Rose was banned for life for gambling on baseball. He was? Yeah. I don't know if you heard this. Hmm. So I'm just going to ask you this question with zero preparation. Is what the Houston Astros did worse than what Pete Rose did? No, because Pete Rose committed what I call the Garden of Eden sin. You know, sign stealing has gone on forever. Now, the Astros elevated it to an art form. No question about it. And given the way that they uh, just knocked uh, in game five 
that they came out and just obliterated uh, Glasnow. Remember that? Oh, yeah. And yeah. he said he tipped his pitches. Well, that may be a convenient excuse. Tipped it when you look at the scoreboard and there's a light blinking saying, here comes a curveball. Um, but, um, you know, what Pete did is as close to you as you can have in baseball to the unforgivable sin. Now, the Astros guys got what was coming to them for this, and I think you're going to see uh, Cora up in Boston dealt uh, a pretty heavy blow too. Um, so, uh, you know, wel welcome to Boston, Chaz Bloom. But, um, you know, the Major League Baseball had to make a, a vicious – firm, we ain't fooling around statement on this. And so as soon as they announced the suspensions, remember one year? Oh, yeah. I, I said, and then prompt, I, yeah. Yeah, the owner's like, well, what am I? <laughs> right. You know, You're dead meat. I, yeah. You're done. Yeah. So, but I will say this, and I do vote for the Hall of Fame. I will never get the chance to vote for Pete Rose for the Hall of Fame because they won't put him on the ballot. But, um, I've gone round and round and round about this. I was as, as firm a don't let him in guy as you can imagine. I kind of come back around and said, you know, we forgive a lot of things in this country. And if Pete had ever, if there was ever evidence he had thrown a game, which there wasn't, um, then I would have said, no, forget it. He's done. But he would, uh, I did talk to one time, I, I remember talking to John Dowd, who was the uh, kind of prosecutor for Major League Baseball at that time and uh, a famous attorney. And he was kind of advising, he'd done an investigation into Pete and he was advising Mark Giamatti, who was the commissioner then, on what to do about Pete. And so they confronted Pete with the evidence and, you know, we got you, Pete. You know, come on, just fess up. We'll give you suspension. You'll be back in the game in, in a year, maybe two. You know, welcome back to the family. Pete wouldn't admit it. And he, so he got hammered. So I asked Dowd directly, if Pete had admitted it, would he be in Major League Baseball today and probably in the Hall of Fame? He said, yes. Fun times. So the lesson, kids, just admit your crimes. Yeah. Yeah. Throw yourself on the mercy of the court. All right. Uh, a couple last things before we get out of here. Just a passing thought. USF basketball hard fought yesterday with Dick Vitale in the house against Memphis. They had a big lead in the second half. Unfortunately, it got away from them, and they fall to the Memphis Tigers 68-64. to Joe Henderson, anything to say on that other than disappointment? Well, yeah, the the injury they suffered with Yetna at the start of the season, you know, took, took out a guy who was an elite player, They've been struggling to find their way since then. Um, Brian Gregory's a good coach. He's doing a heck of a job with that team. And it's unfortunate what happened, but, you know, they put up a spirited effort just a little short. Like, like I said last week, I'm looking heavily at him from the Florida Gators because I don't think Mike White, Mike White uh, I don't think he survives after especially a brutal loss to Missouri. I said that last week. I'm going to say it again. Final thoughts before we get out of here. We are one week closer to Tampa Bay Vipers season. Have you bought your season tickets yet? Have you done it? No, I had to go to Walmart instead to pick up some paper towels. 
listen, they said games are going to be under three hours, about 245 in length. They're bringing back kickoffs. They're bringing back punts. They're bringing the double pass back. XFL fantasy, huh? Huh? Uh, let me know how it goes. <laughs> uh, Tampa Bay Vipers start sometime next month against other teams that with players you've never heard of. Yeah. Or maybe you've heard of them, but you didn't know they were still playing football. Listen, the Vipers got Quentin Flowers. Hey, I'm all in for that. Yeah. Aaron there you go. Murray. Yeah, there mm-hmm. you go. We're, we're going to get you to a game. No. All right. Well, we're going to spend this week convincing him to go to a Tampa Bay Vipers game. In the meanwhile, we are going to watch the college football national championship. As I'm sure you have heard Clemson versus LSU, they're both the Tigers. One of them is going to win. So we're going to go watch that. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you've enjoyed it, go ahead and follow us on Twitter. We are at Tampa Bay Sports Hen. That's about the only social media we got right now. But the more we grow, the more we can get. So we hope you come back. I'm Ben Henderson. I'm Joe. And we are Tampa Bay Sports with the Hendersons. Until next time.